I'm Madeline Jane Abel, and this is Window Dressing, Glamour Girl Next Door, MGM to Playboy. This week, I will be discussing Jane Fonda. I will not be doing a breakdown of her entire still-ongoing career, but instead will focus on the shift she made from the 1960s to the 1970s in her personal life and her professional one. Fonda goes from French director Roger Vadim's latest sex goddess and wife to street-walking realism in the span of a couple years. After the Manson murders in Los Angeles, the Kennedy assassination, and the disappointment that free love rained down on women, American film finally caught up to the culture. An example of this played out explicitly in Clute. There is one scene in the beginning of the film where Brie, Jane Fonda's character, is putting on makeup to go on a modeling call so she can ease up on turning tricks. She leans into her Art Deco vanity mirror in her dingy one-room apartment. Behind her and to her right is a pencil sketch of Kennedy. This scene says it all. A call girl trying to bootstrap her way to success, still through sex, only this time the advertising kind, all while a hand-drawn Kennedy sketch offers a hope that not only never comes, but was literally shot down. The 1969 film Easy Rider, which co-starred her brother, Peter Fonda, changed the cinematic landscape. Everyone of a certain age has seen this movie and remembers the experience. This film influenced and impacted culture the way art that is in and of the zeitgeist only can. Things began to shift visually as well. They were grainy, dingy, true to color, and heavily weighted with consequence. The rise of cinematic porn around this time deeply affected mainstream cinema and culture at large. Deep Throat was still a few years off, but the stage was being set. A side note about makeup. Porn and sex generally has had a large impact on makeup trends. There is a sex-influenced throughline from the advent of makeup, which initially only prostitutes wore, to the hyper-glossed lips of modern culture that are clearly dick-sucking inspired pouts. From 1967 to 1973, Jane Fonda was married to Roger Vadim, the French filmmaker who had a child with Catherine Deneuve and a failed marriage to Bridget Bardot. Vadim was responsible for such films as And God Created Woman, starring his ex-wife Bridget Bardot, and Barbarella, starring Jane Fonda, which was made while the two were married. Barbarella is a sex romp, but more important than the film's content is the star's styling. Fonda is made up like Bardot or Deneuve during this time in her life and career. She has flowing golden blonde hair teased up with height and weighted with curls. Her makeup is heavy-duty 1960s glam, and her body is bodacious in a metal silver sex suit. By 1971, Fonda had left France, became a war activist, and was starring in Pakula's groundbreaking film, Clute. Fonda took the role after she left France and cut off all her signature Barbarella blonde hair in favor of a brown shag hairdo that was, and remains, iconic. The origin of the Clute haircut is similar to that of the haircut for Rosemary's Baby. Everyone wants credit for it, but it was a choice made by Fonda unrelated to the film. She had it cut in London by Paul McGregor before the filming of Clute. She got her feet wet in gritty films back in the States with the 1969 film They Shoot Horses, Don't They? She wore a wig in that film, and the experience of having to pile all those blonde curls under a short wig emphasized the weight of her hair, emotionally and physically, influencing her decision to cut it before Clute. 
They Shoot Horses, Don't They? is about Depression-era dance marathons in the United States that exploited poverty for entertainment. As a result of these competitions, many people died of exhaustion-related causes. The 1969 film is directed by Sidney Pollack and stars Jane Fonda as Gloria, a down-on-her-luck girl who, out of starvation and desperation, enters a marathon dance competition in Los Angeles. Her partner is disqualified during the entry process for illness, and she ends up recruiting passerbyer and sweet kid Robert, played by Michael Sarazen. They dance their way to exhaustion, illness, and misery as the audience chooses couples to sponsor and literally throws pennies at them for their effort. Or as competition host, Rocky, played by Gig Young, would say, reward these kids for their, quote, grit and never-say-die spirit that's made this a great country, unquote. The contestants are only allowed two hours of sleep at a time and must be continually moving while out on the floor. The winners are charged fees for room and board, making the already gross exaggeration of the American Dream Circus Act into a capitalist nightmare. The film ends with Gloria and Robert walking away from the competition because they refused to marry as a publicity stunt, and they found out about the fees that would strip away their winnings should they make it. The couple, now completely shattered, run down and near dead, sit together watching the ocean. Fonda's character, Gloria, brandishes a gun, saying, I want off this merry-go-round. Robert watches as she tries but fails to pull the trigger. She begs him for his help. He shoots her, and her head flings back in a bloodied moment of well-deserved rest. Robert is arrested, and when he's asked why he did it, he says, she asked me to, and then they shoot horses, don't they? The film was based on a 1935 novel of the same name, written by Horace E. Thomas. It isn't exactly a true story, but it most certainly is based on the realities of these Depression-era dance competitions. It's dark and difficult to watch. One of the other things that adds to the depth and difficulty of this film is Jane Fonda's mother, whom she said she felt the presence of during filming. Fonda's mom, Frances Ford Seymour, killed herself in a sanatorium when Jane was little. That presence is palpable in her performance, which is excellent and rooted in suffering. Visually, the set deck and costumes are near perfect. Donfeld, whom we talked about last week, costumed Valley of the Dolls and They Shoot Horses, Don't They? This time, realism is the aim, and the art department as a whole really hit their mark. Fonda's costumes as Gloria are unassuming, almost modern, yet era-specific and incredibly accurate. There are a lot of through lines between the 1930s and the 1970s in terms of design, which is no accident. It means something, an indication of the concerns and issues that are in the air in both time periods. Hair and clothes, slacks for women, shorter hairstyles, thin eyebrows, and heavy mascara with the Garbo eye treatment in terms of liner, this is all crossover styling between the two eras. The women wear a lot of knits, which is a hallmark of women's sportswear in its adolescence, and came back with a vengeance in the 1970s. The silhouette, too, is similar. Bras in the 1920s were usually non-existent or flattening. In the 1930s, they were soft fabric, what we call bralettes now. The 1970s obviously could do without them entirely, 
but the effect is very much the same. One of the most impressive elements of this film is the set deck. Frank R. McLevy was the set decorator, and Harry Horner was the production designer. There is one scene where the show's host, Rocky, is sitting off of the stage eating breakfast in a windowed cove. The walls are painted a muddy taupe color. I almost screamed. Paint colors in the 1920s and 1930s often had brown and gray added to the color, so it would wear better over time. Muddied shades were what was available. Nowadays, if you try to match a paint color from the 1930s, you simply can't do it. The base of modern paint is always white. The closest you can get to matching a true 1920s or 1930s shade is with milk paint, and even then, it's not right. The color is also just spot on. I have a few swatches from this era, and this muddied taupe was a very popular shade at that time. The first scene I am going to talk about is just a moment of quick dialogue between Gloria and Robert. They had just partnered up, not knowing one another, and Robert attempts to make small talk with Gloria. Gloria still has a full, if not demure, face of makeup. Creamy brown shadow from lash to brow, a barely lined mauve lip, and a hint of rose to her cheeks. Her hair is short, worn in a loose wave, and she is wearing a mid-length, dark red dress with tiny black polka dots. It has a halter neckline with a strappy, sporty back and a collared ruffle frill over the bust. This is another one-to-one 30s to 70s style that looks like an accurate period piece and a modern frock all in one. Excellent costume design. Robert asks Gloria if she can feel the ocean. He goes on to say that you can feel the waves from far away. She says, not where I'm from. He says, where's that? She lists some states and then he presses about why she left home. She says, have you ever been to bed with the Syrian who chews tobacco? Well, if anyone ever asks, you can tell them there's no future in it. His affect here is right on. He looks uncomfortable but earnest. The conversation is interrupted by another couple who came literally too close to Gloria who calls them out on it. She then goes on with her story and says, he was a butcher. Robert says, who was? Gloria responds, the Syrian. Looking uncomfortable, he says, I didn't mean to be personal. He says it twice. Gloria, looking angry and confused, says, well, why did you ask then? Robert says, just to make conversation. Gloria's response to that is, don't strain yourself for me. I found this exchange very moving. She starts to open up to him, and he immediately reveals that he doesn't really want to know her, he just wants to dance on the surface of niceties. She is mean to him in response, but also very hurt. The alienation of her trauma informs her later suicide-slash-murder. By that time, Robert does understand, and allows the whole her in. That's why he helps. Near the end of the dance competition, Rocky, the slimy MC, suggests that Gloria and Robert get married so they can make out with a couple hundred dollars of gifts. Gloria, who is now dirty and near dead looking, says they might win, in which case they would make out with $750 apiece. Rocky then presents Gloria with the bill for the winner, the deductions for room and board that I mentioned in the film's synopsis. At that moment, 
Robert walks in and says it's time to get back. Gloria says, what the hell is the point? She leaves and heads into the women's rest area to pack up her things. Robert follows her. She can't find one of her silk stockings. Silk stockings she had to scrimp and save for. She asks Robert for help. He finds the missing stocking, but while pulling it up to hand it to her, he rips it. She takes the stocking into her hands and begins to sob. The brutality of this scene is a direct reflection of the so-called American dream that not only leaves some people out, but actively injures more. This particular brand of desperation feels uniquely American to me, and very much a part of our history. As much as we can see and feel with our hearts the awful effects of capitalism and the independent, go-west young man spirit that fuels our common ideology, it also informs the success of this actress. Jane Fonda wouldn't exist anywhere but here. The audacity of reinvention that she embodies is as American as apple pie. That truth makes this scene and the whole film even more compelling. Just like the muddied paint colors of the 1930s and the dirty realism of the 1970s, this is a complicated soup of deeply held beliefs sprinkled with human suffering. In the 1960s leading into the 1970s, Depression-era stories, visuals, and misery were all of a sudden relevant politically and aesthetically. This feeds into the neo-noir genre that is about to bloom. Most noirs, made in the 1940s and 1950s, were based on books written during the Depression. The connection between the time periods is apparent visually as well. This is often the first indication that we, societally, are grappling with similar political or socioeconomic issues of any said era. It starts to be reflected in wardrobe and design. Clute has this in spades. Even the dialogue is laced with 1930s-era bad girl speak. Phrases like, the brig, and they put the cage on me, are rampant in the film. My personal favorite is, quote, I'm just a nervous broad, unquote, which I attempt to work into conversation as often as possible. The list goes on. Brie is a sort of updated gangster's mall, but this time her boyfriend's a pimp and she is all alone. Fonda's broken, confused, and lonely Brie Daniels is undoubtedly one of the best performances I have ever seen. Even the way she wears clothes is entirely at one with the character. The costumes, designed by Anne Roth, mark a tide shift in Hollywood film and costume design. Roth was personally accused of destroying the glamour of film costume, although that is not true. Like Adrian, MGM costumer of the 1930s, Roth worked with the women and the role instead of putting clothes on a doll and hoping they hung well. The effect of Fonda's wardrobe as Brie is still felt and seen on American women today. She reinvented the femme fatale into a workaday woman with great clothes and a psychiatrist on call. Clute is one of many films in the 1970s that reflects a kind of paranoid reality closely tied to the sentiment of the time period. The theme of surveillance intertwined with extreme loneliness pervades the mood of every scene. 
Brie Daniels is a New York City call girl and aspiring model slash actress, attempting to phase out tricks, but is left feeling alone. She is haunted by a sense of being stalked, and despite reporting it to the police when questioned in connection to a missing man, she dismisses the feeling as nervousness. John Clute, played by Donald Sutherland, is a small-town man taking on the role of P.I. after his friend, Tom Gruneman, goes missing. The police link Tom and Bree through a sexually explicit letter found in Tom's desk. Tom's boss, Peter Cable, played by Charles Coffey, is bankrolling Clute's amateur detective work as a sign of good faith to Tom's wife. During Clute's investigation, Clute becomes personally involved with Bree. Bree and Clute contact her former pimp, Frank Ligorin, played by Roy Schneider, and end up tracking down Arlen Page, played by Dorothy Tristan. Arlen is a junkie and former friend and fellow call girl of Bree. The proximity to the past drives Bree to a near overdose and a close call stabbing incident that I cannot watch without erupting in tears. Keep in mind that Clute is a film I have seen so many times that it lives in my mind like my own memories. Bree's breakdown leads her to her psychiatrist's office and then to a garment-cutting warehouse to meet one of her regulars. In the darkened, lonely space, Bree discovers a monster has followed her. Cable turns out to be the freak John who killed Tom and murdered Arlen. Clute rescues Bree by simply showing up. A huge deal, if you ask me. Not all of us get a John Clute, but he certainly set the standard for the perfect man. On brand with the realism of the era, Bree and Clute do not end up together. A few shots into the film, Brie arrives at her New York City apartment with a bushel of marigolds and a bag of groceries at dusk. She is wearing a blue knit turtleneck with a maxi skirt of the same color printed with angled floral stripes. She wears a large brown belt and a Victorian perfume ball necklace in brass. She looks like a modern girl next door. As soon as she enters the building, fear surrounds her. We see a bird's eye view of her walking up the stairs to our apartment, which is above a funeral parlor, the sign for which is a neon blue that glows in the darkening shot. When she enters the almost entirely dark building, a faint, warm light reflects on her face in a close-up shot. There is fear in her eyes. She darts up the stairs and out of view. What is left in the frame is a dirtied green wall next to an intensely red door. Around the next corner, she pauses and looks. She quickly walks towards her apartment door. Once inside, she locks more than one deadbolt and immediately starts to run a bath. After her bath, She sits in her kitchen wearing a cranberry caftan, drinking a glass of wine and smoking weed, which she holds with a roach clip. Her apartment is a studio, so the kitchen is just beyond the foot of the bed with a stove and sink to one side and a table in the center. She sits at her round 1940s wood kitchen table. She has a hanging Tiffany petaled lamp in greenish blue hue above her and two candles on the surface of the table in front of her. The darkened room surrounding her is adorned with mostly 1930s and 1940s furniture, including a painted brass bed frame and a gorgeous vanity with a round mirror as large as Stanwick's in Sorry Wrong Number and mine in life. The bed has gathered curtains behind it and a fabric canopy with fringe hanging above. 
She has placed the marigolds on her bedside table. They look very tall and large in her space. Marigolds are poisonous flowers. They will not kill an adult, but they can kill a pet or a child if consumed. Brie lights both candles and stands to turn on the Tiffany lamp. She sits back in the candlelight and puts her feet on the table. Her feet are wrapped up in the caftan's hemline, giving her the look of a small child. She starts to sing an Irish hymn. It is comforting to witness Brie in this scene. She is alone, and the safety of aloneness compared with the act she must put on in the world as a model-slash-call girl is palpable. The fear she has when climbing the stairs of her apartment building and the relief felt once she crosses the threshold of her own home are familiar and vital to pay attention to in this film. Jane Fonda understands and fully expresses the extreme vulnerability of womanhood on screen in these intimate scenes. Brie tries to make a sanctuary for herself in her home while she transitions from public-facing commodity to a privately valued person, but she isn't allowed that. After her apartment has been broken into and ransacked by Peter Cable, she returns to the scene to collect a few things. She is wearing a tan trench coat with brown leather piping and black thigh-high boots. Her ex-pimp boyfriend, Frankie, is sitting in an ornately carved wood chair by the fireplace, following her every move with his eyes. The effect is that of a king, albeit a fucking disgusting one, sitting on his throne. Clute enters the room and watches Bree continue to gather her things with tears in his eyes. She ignores him and folds clothes with her head down. He says he does not want Bree to do this, not with him, referring to Frankie. Bree puts on her practice call girl phone voice to deliver a pat dismissal of Clute's concerns. Frankie interjects with a wildly condescending speech about respect, specifically saying that he respects Bree and now Clute has to respect her too. Bree sits down under the petals of her Tiffany lamp and looks up at Clute as she allows Frankie to speak for her. Clute dives at Frankie and grabs him by the neck with both hands. The two fight while Brie looks on. She gets a pair of scissors from the kitchen and stabs Clute in his arm, ripping his suit and breaking her own heart. He doesn't make a noise. He turns and walks away, leaving Brie standing in the middle of her destroyed apartment, still clutching the scissors in her hand. Bree's home is a place that represents the only means of protection she had, and it is now destroyed. The private space she alone wielded control over is now vulnerable, and that loss of power is terrifying. The need to be protected, but primarily the tragedy that she wasn't in the first place, is her motivation to stab Clute. Bree's misplaced rage and self-destruction as a means of self-protection are uniquely female in this film. She is not protected unless she is property, and often not even then. Bree, post-stabbing incident, heads to her psychiatrist's office. The doctor is out. Driven by desperation, Bree heads to the garment-cutting warehouse of her most friendly client, Mr. Goldfarth. He isn't there, but he left her an envelope of cash, no note. This adds insult to injury. She's just a client to her shrink and just a commodity to her client. 
She stays to leave him a handwritten message. It is the end of the workday and the place is clearing out quickly. We hear the old gated elevator come up, indicating the killer has followed her there. Bree, after writing her note, attempts to reach her therapist again. She leaves the number of where she can be reached and says she will wait five minutes for the doctor to call back. She is wearing the same trench coat with leather piping and popped collar as she was in the previous scene. The workspace is dark, but a collapsible nude dress form is visible in the space with her. She walks out of the office amongst the hanging garments wrapped in plastic, like corpses. As she is walking, the face of the killer becomes visible. Meanwhile, Clute is attempting to find Brie via her psychiatrist's secretary. Cable, the killer, is holding Brie hostage in the tiny office space in the back. A fake Tiffany lamp remains unlit by her face. This design detail reflects her own hanging kitchen lamp at home, but is fake and unlit, indicating a threat to her person based on her persona as a call girl. Cable begins an even-toned speech about how he can't be connected to a certain kind of woman and wants to buy Jane McKenna's book, meaning her little black book with the name of all her Johns in it. It would connect Cable to the murders. This book isn't real. Clute made it up to trap Cable and Bree is caught in the crosshairs. The phone rings. It is Clute likely. Cable shows his hand when he pounces on the phone so she can't answer it. Cable then confesses to killing three people, using Bree's forced presence as a kind of gender-specific servitude similar to how he treats sex workers more generally. He then describes a situation in which he murdered Bree's friend, Jane McKenna. He uses phrases like, It happened so quickly, and I don't know why she screamed. Clute's friend and Cable's co-worker, Tom Grunerman, walked in on the scene, and his knowledge is what eventually led to his death at the hands of Cable. Bree pretends like she understands. She says, I understand. I really do. Cable responds, well, that's what you all do. You make a man feel like he is accepted. He then goes on to call sex workers lazy and says that his particular weaknesses were brought out by Bree. She is blamed for the killer's sexual and, by extension, murderous proclivities. Cable then starts a tape. It is the recording of him murdering her friend, Arlen Page. This killer's recap is long, and you can hear the realization of the danger she is in in Arlen's voice. Bree must sit there silently in tears and take it if she hopes to survive. Rape parables abound. Tears roll down Bree's face and snot out of her nose. When the screaming starts, we, the audience, feel it in our guts. I cry every time I watch this part, which honestly is more times than I can count. Once the screaming stops and Arlen is dead, he turns off the tape and lunges at Bree. They struggle in the dark. Clute comes in and saves her, sending Cable through the pane glass window. The fact that the rescue comes after the torture of having to bear witness to that tape of Arlen's death is important to the point of the film. She can't be saved, just like Arlen couldn't be saved. The best they can hope for is a witness, which honestly is a pretty powerful thing. So you could say that Clute fails her by showing up too late to spare her that horror. But the truth is, Arlen needed a witness and Bree is the only one strong enough or smart enough to be that for her. 
Faced with the brutality of the realities of being an unprotected woman, a.k.a. a free one, without a husband or overbearing father paying for or bossing her around, Brie leaves the city alone. She doesn't stay with Clute. She isn't the type to quote-unquote darn socks. This is a great ending for the film because it shows the reality of the choices presented to her. She can choose safety, survival, or freedom, but she can't have all three of them. By the end of the film, we have a very clear understanding of the consequences and, quite honestly, the brutality of each one of her options. Jane Fonda's character, Brie Daniels, in Clute, marks the moment when the girl next door and the glamour girl type split or join to create a third type, the real woman. She isn't exactly a femme fatale of the 1940s, but she has the world weariness down. She doesn't exactly exude accessibility, but she isn't elevated either. And she is glamorous, but that protection is easily dismantled. Brie is every woman, but Fonda as Brie lends an air of American royalty to what is already a deeply complex and ultimately defining period in our history, the transition between the 1960s and the 1970s. Next week, on Window Dressing, Glamour Girl Next Door, MGM to Playboy, we start another transition, the 1970s to the 1980s. Diane Cannon's work and life, including the 1990 film she wrote, directed, and acted in that is supposedly loosely based on her life, called The End of Innocence, is up for discussion. I will talk about her and the woman who played the younger version of her in that 1990 film, Rebecca Schaefer. Schaefer was shot in the face by a fan shortly after working with Diane. Her murder ultimately created the first stalking laws in California and then the country. I will be talking about her film, scenes from the class struggles in Beverly Hills, along with Diane's work in the 1970s and 1980s. That episode will come out two weeks from today. I need the extra time to read Cannon's memoir, My Life with Carrie, about her marriage to the legendary Carrie Grant. I'm really looking forward to this episode, so please excuse the wait. Follow the podcast on Instagram and support me and this work by liking, following, and if you're so inclined, donating to Window Dressing Podcast through Spotify. Thank you so much for listening. I will see you in two weeks. This is Madeline Jane Opple.